Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you've joined us for worship today, and we do look forward to seeing what God has for us as we come together and look into his word. Before we jump in, though, we want to draw attention to our rows up here at the front. When we have a rose, it means that there's been a new birth, a new life that has come into the world that has connection to the church, and we want to celebrate that. So today we celebrate the birth of Nolan Eugene Wildman Pickard. Nolan Eugene Wildman Pickard, uh, that is the grandson of Joey and Dave Curtis and the great-grandson of Jack Wildman. So congratulations to them. We're so excited for you, and we celebrate this new life that's come about. Well, as we turn our attention now to the Word of God, let's go to the Lord in prayer asking the Lord to open our eyes to his truth today. Father God, I pray that you would be with us today, Lord, that you would speak to us in clear ways, Lord, in the ways that we need to hear from you. Lord, I pray that our our eyes and our ears, and most importantly, our hearts and minds would be open to to hear how you are directing and moving in our lives. Lord, that we would hear the call that you have made available to everyone, to each one of us, Lord, to follow But Lord, that today that we would begin the process of also counting the cost anew. And Lord, considering how it is that we steward the resources of our lives and our very lives themselves in the effort to follow you. Lord, speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every year I tell the same joke, and I'll continue doing it because I don't love the season. There are are three major seasons on the church calendar. There's Christmas, where we celebrate the birth of Jesus, God sending his son to us. There is Easter, where we celebrate the resurrection, but also remember the death, Jesus giving his life for us. And then there is Stewardship Month, where we celebrate our need for you to give back to Jesus so that we can do what the church does. And so we are in that season where we have to talk about giving and what it means to be stewards of God's resources. And for those that are just visiting for the first time, I know that that's one of the things that the church gets beat up over. It's like, oh man, every time I step into the church, they're like, you've got to give, you've got to give, you've got to give. And and I would say if you talk to the people that attend here, I apologize if this is your first time here because giving is not my jam. Like I just assume it um, and we're going to be into that a little bit today. The, the assumption is that God wants the entirety of your life, and that's the point that I'm going to to make today. And if God wants all of your life, your financial resources are part of that. And so we don't always have, like, we don't spend a lot of time talking about giving. If anything, if you're here on a regular basis, you hear me talking about the need for you to serve, the need for you to engage, the need for you to share the gospel, and the realities of what God has given to us. But we are in that season now where we need to talk as we prepare for the budget about the stewardship of our, our resources, our, our time, our talent, and our treasures. And we're going to do that by, by looking through the gospel of Luke over the next few weeks. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 14 to begin. As we get started, I was thinking this week about how how we might go into this. You know, I think about price check. You know, that's the title for this morning's sermon, price check. And and I don't know how, how you are with shopping, but I find that in most relationships, particularly with married couples, there are two kinds of people in the relationship. There is there is the person that likes to spend, and there is the person that likes to save. Right? 
Everybody find that to be somewhat true in your relationships? And some of you be like, no, man, we just like to spend. But in our relationship, that is definitely true. I am the one who likes to spend, and Robin is the one who likes to save. Now, that doesn't, however, mean that Robin doesn't like to shop. Robin does like to shop, but Robin is a sale queen. She is one of those people that is all about the sales anywhere she can go. I am one of those people that if I want it and I have the money, I'm just going to buy it. I don't want to, like for me, it's not worth the time and the consternation and the stress of looking around at all the different stores and comparing. All that does is get me all confused and ruins the shopping experience. I would rather just drop the dollars on the counter and make the exchange and call it good. That is not how Robin works. Robin enjoys the hunt. She likes the thrill of the hunt. And Robin enjoys going through and looking through all of the racks and making sure that as she's looking at the rack, she finds the cheapest of items. And Robin is, Robin is so firm in this that, that I don't know that Robin has ever in our entire marriage paid full price for anything ever. She will wait five years to get the thing that is now out of date on sale that we really probably can't even use anymore, but she's waited and got what she's looking for. She is probably the only person, not probably, she is the only person that I know who will go to Goodwill and complain that the prices are too high. <laughs> yeah, appreciate that. Leticia is like, yep, that's me too right here. You guys can shop together. But Robin will, go, Robin will go to Goodwill. I remember when COVID ended and everything opened back up. And the first time Robin went back to Goodwill, she used to go every weekend on Saturdays with Michaela, whether she needed to or not. And they would go and shop. And Robin came home livid, like face red mad. And if you know Robin, it takes a lot to get Robin there. I mean, I do it right with regularity, but that is a developed skill. <laughs> I remember Robin coming home and she is red in the face and she is all kinds of mad because Goodwill had done away with its 50% weekends. It is Goodwill. Like everything is nigh unto free anyways, but Robin was mad because Goodwill no longer had its sale day. Something that still angers her to this day. Because Robin is one of those people that counts the cost. We would be broke if it was for me. Like if it was just me making my own financial decisions, we would be in trouble. But I've got a financial manager, one here at the church and one at home. And, and we watch that spending. And, and it's good. Robin does. She, she counts the cost. And she wants to make sure that she's not paying too much for the product at hand. Now, she's willing to lay the money out if it's something that we need. But if, if at all possible, she wants to find a sale. She wants to find the best possible price available because she understands the benefit of that and the reality of cost-to-benefit ratio. Now, we don't talk, we don't like talking about it much, but, but there is a price to be paid for following Jesus. We, we like talking about Jesus paying it all. We're actually going to sing that at the end of our service today. And that's very true that Jesus did, in fact, pay the penalty for our sin. We like talking about what Jesus did for us. We like talking about what Jesus provides through his gift of grace, that it is free of charge to us, but it cost him something. But the reality is that to follow Jesus is actually a very costly endeavor. 
And Jesus talks about that over and over and over again throughout the Gospels. But we see it very clearly in the Gospel of Luke on several occasions. Where Jesus, as he is talking to his disciples, as he's talking to those that are traveling with him, says, Hey, look, before you jump into this whole Jesus J-Train thing here, understand that there is a cost for riding. There is a price that will have to be paid. We want to look at that over the next couple of weeks. And today, again, we're starting in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. If you have a Bible, turn with me there. Luke 14, 25 through 35. Luke 14, 25 through 35. And it says this starting in verse 25 of Luke 14. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, does not hate wife and children, does not hate brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and, and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't the king first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he is not able... He will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, if, salt is good but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pyre, pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. This is a hard passage. This is a hard passage because in a lot of ways, it it seems to to grate against what we expect from Jesus. It doesn't doesn't fit into our our mind's eye of of what the gracious love of Christ looks like because Jesus is, is creating qualifications. If you want to follow me, you have to do this. And if you won't do this, if you don't do this, you don't make the cut. What do we do with a text like that? What what does Jesus mean by all of the things that he's saying? Let's take a a moment to dive into this and see what maybe Jesus is telling us. First thing that I notice, though, as we get into this, is that the, the invitation to follow Jesus is, in fact, open to everyone. The, the invitation to come and follow is open to everyone. Anyone who is willing, any and everyone who is willing to walk with him could come. And here in verse 25, we we see a very apropos uh, situation. Because not only is Jesus talking about the cost and the reality of following him spiritually and what that's going to take physically down the line, these people are actually actively following Jesus right now. It's kind of ironic that as they're following Jesus, Jesus turns to him and says, Hey, if you want to follow me, this is what it's going to take. Now, in my imagination, I often see Jesus preaching and teaching to crowds, but then traveling with his 12 
plus maybe a few ladies that are going with him. But the reality is that crowds went with Jesus everywhere he went. They, they all constantly didn't, they didn't want to miss what was going on. They didn't want to miss what they could receive or get from Jesus. They, they didn't want to miss the show, if you will. And, and I fear that sometimes that's, the, that's what we try to sell the world. I mean, and let's be honest, that, that, is, that is much easier to sell than what Jesus lays out here. It's much easier to stand up here and talk about the grace of God. It's much easier to talk about a giving God. It's much easier to talk about what God does for us than it is for us to stand up here and say, yes, God does achieve salvation for us, but there is something that we are to do for him in return. But Jesus opens the invitation to anyone. Jesus often, if you go through the Gospels and you go and you read, you, you see a few in instances where Jesus offered very, very clear, special invitations, right, to his, his 12. He said, hey, leave your nets, come follow me. You see a, a few of those. But by and large, when we see what we would maybe call the invitation passages in the Gospels, Jesus is saying, he's using words like, whoever, whoever would follow me, if anyone wants to be my disciples, come to me all. The invitation is, in fact, open to everyone. There, there is nothing exclusive about the invitation to join Jesus in what he is doing in the world. There is nothing exclusive about the, the, the availability of salvation. If we are willing to accept the invitation, it is there for anyone who wishes to reach out and take it. And, and to look at the passage, there's a lot of people that were, were game at this point, right? Right? I mean, Jesus, if we, if we continue reading, we know that he's feeding thousands of people. We know that, that there are, are, they're, they're filling houses to the point where they're having to rip off roofs to get in people for Jesus to heal. Jesus is packing the house everywhere we go. And, and Jesus, already having this incredibly successful ministry, comes and lays this down. Now, this is what we would call bad marketing. Right? Jesus was a terrible brand builder. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And it's one of those things that just consistently jumps out at me. If, if we were to compare how Jesus sold things, Jesus was a terrible salesman. You, you do not want to trust him with your marketing campaign. Because he's already got people following, me, and then he, following him, and then he turns around and drops this. They're literally physically there. They're, they're already rolling with him. All he has to do is close the deal. Jesus was a terrible salesman. You know why that is? Because Jesus wasn't selling anything. Jesus was a terrible salesman because he was, in fact, a prophetic teacher. He was the Son of God and God made flesh. He wasn't selling a product, he was calling them to a new lifestyle. He wasn't selling the pro a product, he was calling them to be new, transformed people. I worry that we lose sight of that sometimes. That we see this, what's happening right now, is being transactional. That, that when we get the band or, or we get the organ, we get the piano, we get the choir, we, we have paid for entertainment that, that we enjoy. And that's what the church becomes. That we have come to our church and we pay our money, we pay our fee at the door, usually by donation, and we are paying for a product. We have, we have paid for someone to take care of us. We have paid for a service. We have paid to hear a certain type of story from the stage. We have paid to be entertained and engaged in certain specific ways. 
But you understand the gospel isn't transactional in that way. That, that Jesus does, yes, offer us the free gift of salvation. That, he, that he's offered us something, but that something it isn't, the, isn't what, what we do up here. It's not the show. It's what, what happens in our hearts when we come together and we engage as part of his body. It's not about getting what we pay for, but investing in the kingdom. The invitation to come and follow Jesus is more than joining a social or civic club or institution. It is a total and complete reorientation of the entire structure and systems of our lives. It's orienting ourselves based upon who Jesus is. Around orienting ourselves around what Jesus taught. And the mission to make him known in a world that desperately needs to know him. A world that often isn't always ready to hear or accept what Jesus has to offer. This should speak to us. Even this opening verse, that large crowds are traveling with Jesus as he turns to preach to them. These invitations of Jesus should speak to us as the church in the world today. Jesus' invitation was open to everyone. And he had some interesting casts of characters that came with him. I believe with all my heart that if we were to see Jesus walking the streets today with his disciples or forming a church, that we would be shocked and offended by who he allowed in his church. I believe that we would be shocked and that we would be offended at times at his message. I, I'm telling you, as I read the Bible more and more and I compare it to what I was taught in gr church growth classes, they do not line up. Jesus said, he laid out some very inconvenient, uncomfortable, and difficult truths. Not the least of was this open invitation to anybody. Jesus wasn't concerned with building the right kind of brand per se, but with building followers who would stand firm in the truth and live the life even when it was difficult and the cost was high. The church must Always be open to everyone. Our mission is to offer the love and grace of Jesus to meet the needs of all as we're able. But our goal isn't to grow a following. Our goal is to help encourage and empower people to stay on track as they seek to follow Jesus and to live the life to which he's called them. This will require us to hear, accept, and stand upon and invest ourselves in hearing and sharing the truth of the living God. As inconvenient and uncomfortable as it might be at times. And Jesus gives us one of those uncomfortable truths as he turns to this crowd of people. Jesus' message here in, in Luke chapter 14, and again, we're going to see it again next week as we look at Luke chapter 18 and 19. But Jesus' message is this, and this is something we see in the Gospels, that salvation is free, but following Jesus is costly. Salvation is free, but following Jesus is costly. We see it very clearly here in Luke chapter 14. Now we know 
if we were to look at other texts, and I feel the need to give this caveat, we know that salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 tells us, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We talked about that actually last week, that our salvation, we, we don't achieve that. We don't earn our salvation. We don't do anything effectual to make salvation happen. That Jesus has taken care of that, and he offers it to us. The salvation is a free gift of God that is given by God's good grace and received by humble faith. It is of incalculable worth, and none of us are capable of purchasing it on our own account. Spoiler alert, that's going to be the central theme of next week's sermon, so I'm going to let that one sit for a minute. We play no effectual role in salvation. This means we can't achieve it through our own efforts or resources. It is by definition, grace is by definition, undeserved and unearned favor. Salvation is always received and never achieved. Salvation is always received and never achieved. But our salvation by God's efforts on our behalf can, should, and must result on a return in the investment on God's part. It means that, that there is something that we bring to the table after God has saved us. There is something expected of us after God has saved us. That there, there is an outworking that should come from the internal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That as God has saved us and continues to transform us, that it will naturally and logically impact the outworking of our lives. That the things we do will flow out of the truth that we believe and how it transforms us from the inside out. As a matter of fact, we could go back to that same passage that I read in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 a minute ago and read the very next verse in Ephesians 2, 10. And it says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not by works so that no one can boast. But you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he had in mind for you from the foundations of the earth. The one flows out of the other. And that's the thing that we've got to keep in mind. That the order of sequence matters when it comes to our salvation. The problem happens when we get the cart before the horse. And we believe that our works somehow drives salvation. That's not the way that it happens. The salvation by grace, what Christ has done is the horse that continues to pull things forward. But our life must still follow that, right? When the, when the horse pulls the cart and it's happening like it should be, that, that cart keeps moving forward. It moves in the same direction. And salvation is that horse that pulls our lives forward, that, that, that changes us, transforms the very direction and outworking of our lives, makes it functional. Salvation is free, but following is costly. Put another way, entrance into, God's, the, into the kingdom of God is a free act of God's grace. But living in the kingdom... That's going to cost us. I, I think of it this way. The, a couple years ago, 
Robin being the sail hunter that she is, we, we had been given the opportunity to go to Disney World with some friends of ours. They had one of those Disney timeshares where every year they would go and stay in this incredible on-campus Disney resort. And they're like, hey, we, we want you to come with us. We're going to invite you to come to Disney World. We will pay for all the food and the lodging, but you have to pay for your tickets into the amusement park. Well, at the time, we had J.J. and Michaela, and they were both pretty young. And so we were trying to think, like, which child are we going to give to Walt to get the tickets? <laughs> Disney, Walt, Disney World tickets are not cheap, right? So Robin's looking at the ticket price. And I remember her saying to me, there's no way we can do this. And I'm like, well, I guess we can't go. And she's like, no, 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 no. Hold on. And so for weeks, Robin sat there with a the computer and went through and was looking at all these different places. And somehow she found this deal that apparently no longer exists because D Disney World real realized how much money they were losing. But she found this thing where Disney World almost gave us the tickets for free in order to go do this educational program. It was a program for, for homeschool families that, that was meant to engage the kids in learning in practical ways. It actually was really cool. As a brief side note, Michaela and I got to go pet and touch dolphins and touch sea turtles because we got to go backstage. And so, like, they let us go backstage at Epcot and gave us free tickets to Disney World to do it. Seemed like a good deal for me. It was awesome, right? We got into the park for essentially free. And here we are thinking, we're going to have next to free vacation. We were wrong. Like, I don't know if you've ever been to Disney World, but getting into the park is the least of your concerns price-wise. Right? Because you get in there and everything is up-priced. If you aren't drinking just straight ice water, and I think sometimes they might even char like, have charged you for the ice. Like, if you're not just drinking straight tap water as you're walking through that park, it is going to cost you a pretty penny. It's great. You can get into the park, and there are things you can do, but once living and being in the park costs money. There was a cost to participating in the kingdom life at the House of Mouse. I think the same thing is true for us. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Like, our, our salvation is not in question. One day when we die, if we have accepted God's gift of, of salvation by grace through faith, we, we're good. We will spend eternity with him. But, but there is a cost to living in that kingdom life right now. There is something to be done by us. Salvation is free, but following is costly. Jesus purchased our salvation by his sacrifice on the cross. But there's a price we pay for accepting and following him afterwards. And it's a high cost. Looking again at, at our passage here in Luke, Jesus says in verse 26 of Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, does not hate father and mother, does not hate wife and children, does not hate brothers and sisters, and does not hate their own life, they cannot be my disciple. Is that great against anyone else? Anyone else in the room hears the word, those words and feel like it's just a little bit jarring? It feels just a little bit inconsistent with the message of Jesus as we know it in the rest of the Bible? It's not exactly inspiring, right? This is not the time for us to take the offering and call it a day. But to be a follower of Jesus, he says that we must hate family. Hate them. 
Again, this seems to run counter to the message of Jesus elsewhere. Jesus taught that that being angry, even being angry and speaking hateful words towards other brothers and sisters puts one in danger of hellfire. Like like not not just having bad feelings, but but saying hurtful words. And and we like to to talk like that's nothing, right? Well, it's just words. What big big deal is that? Jesus says, no, 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 no. If you are speaking hateful words and you are having hateful thoughts, you are in danger of hellfire. Even to think it, even, even to say just hateful words. Jesus taught that loving enemies was a requirement for living as children of God. And in doing, he, he turned the system and the understanding of the day on its head, didn't he? Right? Jesus says, hey, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And then you will be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus doesn't even give us license to hate those that are hurting us. Jesus doesn't give us license to hate those that are standing against the truth of Scripture. Jesus does not give us license to hate anybody, right? Jesus goes on further and he says, The entirety of the prophets in the law, the entirety of Scripture is predicated on these two commandments. Love God with every fiber of your being, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And, and, and just so you know, the second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, this is, this is a God who is promoting love. That love is the central ideology of the message of the gospel. And it absolutely is. It is, it is the central marking marker of a follower of Christ, right? Jesus said, hey, everyone is going to know that you are my disciples by your love. Oh, Jesus doesn't say, hey, they're going to know you're my disciples by your good theology and by you standing firm against the terrible people in the world. No, he says, they're going to know you're my disciples by your love for one another. By your love. Hate directed towards anyone is antithetical to the message of the gospel. Hate directed towards anyone is antithetical to the message of the gospel. So how does this fit in? What in the world is Jesus saying? If everywhere he else, is this just a mistake that Luke has made and Matthew and, and Mark for that matter? Did all the apostles just miss a memo and make a mistake in their transcribing of what Jesus said? Or, or could it possibly be that Jesus is, is being hyperbolic and making a point? Well, the truth is that Jesus is using a first century figure of speech. It was common to use the idea of hate not as a means of saying that you actually hate someone, but of actually amplifying the love that you have for something else. He's dramatically increasing and illustrating our understanding of how much we are to love and prioritize him. The point is not that we have to write off all of our family and friends, particularly those who don't believe, right? That's, that's maybe what we would think, that it means that if they don't believe, then we write them off and we move on. No, 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 that's not what Jesus is saying. Paul actually clarifies that later, that if you have unbelieving family, that you should stay close to them, because who knows, perhaps by your example, they might come to believe and be saved. 
It's, it, there, there's no one that gets to be written off because of this. Jesus is not actually telling us to hate anyone. He is making a point that we are to love God so much more that our actions might at times be registered or read as being hateful or uncaring towards others. What do you think? Well, how, how does that work out? How does it work out that, that, if, that, that I love God so much that it feels hateful to others? Well, let, let me give you an example from my own life. Robin and I have twice in our married life moved to West Virginia. Twice in our married life have moved to West Virginia, packed up everything that we own, and moved away from our family far away. As a matter of fact, our plan when we first got married, married was not to move away. Our initial plan was that we were going to get married and that we would live in her parents' house and would, would commute back and forth to Grace College. It's a short, it's a short 30-minute drive from Grace College to where her parents lived. It's a short 40-minute drive from where my parents lived to Grace College. And so we would have been right, right in, in, in the center of where our family already resided, right? As Robin and I started talking, though, we were talking about the reality of finances. And I already told you that Robin's a deal shopper. And so we found out that we could go to this other college and they would give us housing. We would live in marriage student housing. It would be included in our scholarships and we could end our time in college without any new debt. So Robin and I prayed about it for a while and we came to the conclusion that God was leading us without having any family or friends in the area, without, without having any jobs lined up, without really knowing how we were going to work to pay for it, that God was calling us to move to Appalachian Bible College in Bradley, West Virginia. So we're newly engaged, looking forward to our wedding several months down the road. And so we went and sat down with her parents and had a discussion about this plan to move now, rather than 30 minutes away, 90, nine, nine hours away. I am here to tell you that that meeting did not go well. That that news was not appreciated. Robin's parents were not happy with your boy. And it got loud up in that kitchen. Because here I am taking their baby nine hours away into the hills of West Virginia without any real certainty of how we're going to take care of it, just believing that that's what God wanted us to do. Now, did I hate Robin's parents? No. Did Robin hate her parents? Absolutely not. But in that moment, did it feel hateful to them? Absolutely. It was even worse several years later when we'd lived, we lived in North Webster and we only lived 10 miles away from Robin's parents. And at that point, we had a five-year-old daughter and a two, three-year-old son. Now we've got two grandkids. And we call Robin's parents up and again, and we're like, hey, we need to sit down and talk with you. And we told them again we were moving to West Virginia. I thought I wasn't going to make it out with my life. It's one thing to take their daughter away, but you take someone's grandbabies away? That is hateful. Again, did we hate them? No. But the calling of, our God, of God on our lives was more important than their feelings. The calling of God on our lives was more important than their perspectives, their perceptions, their preferences. 
We could look at other stories that are more severe. There's whole books, books on, on, on martyrs where, where the martyrs sacrifice and allow their, their children or their loved ones to, to be killed rather than turning away from the gospel. Now, you can't tell me that doesn't feel hateful. And there are times in our lives and what Christ is saying that you need to prioritize me so much that no one and nothing is going to take your attention away. That following me is going to be the, the most important, the ultimate important thing in your life. That you will give and sacrifice anyone and everything in order to be faithful to the gospel. It's something that Jesus says numerous times. Jesus actually illustrated it earlier in, in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. As they're walking along, again, they're walking, and, and Jesus, a man said to him, Hey, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And Jesus said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. We, we could look, there are other passages. We're going to look at one next week. Jesus says over and over and over again, I need to be the first priority. If you are going to follow me, your life needs to be dedicated to the things that I put before you. Nothing and no one else can be more important to you. It's, it's got to be as if you hate everything else. Jesus says, hey, look. Your own life you have to put on the line. As if you hate your very self, your very life that you are living. And I'm going to include this with what Jesus says next, but it's the important point of all that we're saying today. The, the call of Jesus is to count the cost. We have to count the cost. Following Jesus requires us to put everything on the altar. Everything on the altar. Genuine discipleship demands total sacrifice and complete submission to Jesus. The sacrifice of our very lives. Our comfort and convenience, our preferences and priorities, our security and safety are all subject to the call of Christ. We are to put it all to use in his service. This is one of the reasons that I struggle so much with talking about the necessity of giving. It would be so much easier if I believed that Jesus just wanted us to give 10%. And I do think that, that offering 10% of our net income is a good place to start as far as stewardship of our financial resources. But the fact is I can't say that with good conscience. I can't stand, because I don't believe that Christ just wants 10% of what you have in your wallet. Oh, no, 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 no. I think Jesus wants much more. The New Testament concept over and over and over again is not tithing, but sacrificial giving. It's not just giving what we're comfortable with, but giving till we are uncomfortable. And it's not just your money. 
Jesus is not pleased if we just come sit in our seats and we give him a little bit of our cash here and there. That's not what he wants. Jesus wants our time. He wants us to serve and be engaged and actively involved in the ministry. He wants our talents to use the gifts that we have for him and and not just for our own glory. God wants every piece of your life. All of it should be available to him. To the point where you would literally die for Jesus. And don't sit there and be like, oh, I would die for Jesus. You, you'll die for Jesus? Are you kidding me? You won't serve in the nursery for Jesus. Oh, I will die for Jesus, but I won't go on a youth group mission trip. I will die for Jesus, but I won't teach a middle school Sunday school class. I will die for Jesus, but I won't come stand in an Oktoberfest booth for an hour. I'll give him my money, but don't ask for my time. That's mine. I, I, won't, I won't belabor the point, but this is what, what I struggle with, with, with the idea of stewardship, is that we make it about finances. And brothers and sisters, we're going to hit that hard in a couple of weeks. Fair warning, because we have to. As a church, we cannot operate without funding. But I want to be very clear, this week and next week, two-thirds or half of our, our stewardship com- conversation is going to be about this, that Jesus wants it all. Jesus paid it all. Jesus owns it all. That's what he expects from us. Verse 27, Jesus explicitly tells his followers that they need to be willing to follow him to their deaths. He says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciples. You know what? I believe with all my heart that a martyr's death is not the hardest part of following Jesus. That dying for Jesus is not the hardest thing that God asks for us. You know what I think is the hardest part? The hardest thing that Jesus asks is that we would live for him. No, dying is, dying is easy. Living is hard. And that's exactly what Jesus asks of his followers, that we would live for him. And we don't have what it takes to do it on our own. That's actually the point of what Jesus is saying here in verses 28 through 33. Jesus' point is, you cannot do this without me. Yes, I have paid the cost, and now I'm calling you to walk with me. But understand that the cost is high, and you cannot pay it in your own strength. What Jesus is asking is too much for us to do on our own. It is only through the power and indwelling of his spirit. Jesus says, hey, look, who who looks to build a tower and doesn't first sit down and say, hey, how much is this going to cost? And when I start building on the foundation, do I have what it takes to get finished? You don't want to look a fool. You don't want to start building and end up with with half a wall going on. You want to know that you can complete it. Or who who getting ready to go to the war doesn't, doesn't first figure out, can I win this battle on my own? And then if they can't, go and find someone to help them out with it. Jesus makes two related points in verses 28 through 31. First, we must recognize that we have insufficient resources to complete the task to which Jesus is calling us alone. Jesus himself lays the foundation, right? Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. 
Jesus is encouraging his followers to take stock of their limited resources and to recognize that it's not enough alone. Second, seeing that our resources are not enough, that we're not up to task, we need to offer what we have to the king of kings who has what we need and can marshal our shared resources to meet the challenge. We often think that what Jesus is saying, hey, look, if we can't win the battle head-to-head against another king, then what we need to do is go surrender. We need to compromise with that king that's going to defeat us. But we know that that's not the case, right? Jesus elsewhere says that, hey, we've got to stand and we've got to fight and we've got to be strong. What Jesus is saying is not that we send out a delegation to pay off the king who's going to defeat us. No, he's saying, look, I have, there's another king who will come alongside you and will fight that battle with you. Who will fight that battle for you. Go talk to him and offer him your resources. Submit your resources to him, understanding that he will accomplish with and through you what you cannot accomplish on your own. All of this is calling us to submit and offer our resources back to Christ. Understanding that victory and salvation and the life he has called us to live are only possible through him. Here's the last thing I want us to recognize. That Jesus is not asking us more than he's willing to give himself. Jesus doesn't ask more than he's willing to give when Jesus calls us to give up our lives, when Jesus calls us to, to be willing to, to walk away from family and, and from priorities, Jesus did the same thing, did he not? We could look in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, where we see that, that Jesus, he's God in flesh and had all the righteous God, but instead didn't think that that was something that he needed to take care, hold of, and instead put those rights to the side and became obedient to death, death on the cross, to purchase our pardon. Verse 33, Jesus says this. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. This is the spirit of true biblical stewardship. It is not seeking to understand or know the bare minimum we can devote to Jesus and still consider ourselves followers. Jesus doesn't give us that out. Being a faithful follower of Jesus requires us to recognize that it is all to be used in his service for the building of his kingdom. You know, it's interesting, the church in, in Acts took that literally. You go to Acts chapter 4 and you see that people are selling huge swaths of property. They're seeing what's happening in the church. They're excited about the mission. They sell huge swaths of property and are giving all of the money to the church. They're not asking, how, much, how, how little can I give and still be in? How little time can I serve and still be in? They're like, no, 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 no. Where can I serve? How can I give? How can I be involved? Now listen, I'm not suggesting that you sell off all of your possessions and give them to the church. Though we wouldn't refuse if God were to lead you to do such a sacrificial act. I'm not asking you to devote all of your time to evangelistic efforts, to missional opportunities, and to worship services. I'm not suggesting that we should make a a monastery or a convent out of what we're doing here. What I am asking is that you consider the gifts and resources that God has given you. And that you seek to make available whatever Christ is asking of you in order that his work might be done, that his name might be made great, and that God, through the work and 
activity of First Baptist Church might be known in Seymour, Indiana and beyond. As we count the cost as a church, which we do often, we recognize that we have insufficient funds to do it on our own. It is only as we come together as the body of Christ and offer our shared resources, our time, and our ability, and our money that we can follow Christ with integrity and authority and can see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, the cost is incredibly high. But allow me to assure you that the work and the reward it brings are worth the investment. May we seek God's leading as we offer ourselves to him, as we recognize his sacrifice and we seek how we might live in his image and his glo- for his glory, offering to him all that we have and all that we are. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us this morning. We thank you for the great love with which you've loved us and the great calling that you have placed upon our lives. God, as we recognize that you have paid it all for us, may we, may we graciously and humbly offer back to you all that we are and all that we have. May we seek to engage in your mission using our hands and our feet, using our abilities and our minds. Lord, but may we also seek to offer up your, our resources financially, Lord, that, that you might use them for your glory, for the good of the world. Lord, may we understand that you have sacrificed your all for us and that you have asked us to give back to you the very core of who we are in return. Lord, may we consider your truth today and may we apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.